Okay, well, we're very pleased to have with us uh, Sir Oliver Letwin, who has recently published a book called Apocalypse How, which is a uh, treatise, a parable, if you will, on the potential disruption that the world could face from things like uh, terrorism or from solar events in a world that is getting ever more connected. Uh, and that seemed like something that was really relevant to uh, Digital Twins, which is all about connecting the physical and the digital and the national digital twin, which is about connecting those things together. We have uh, read the book and uh, I must say I did that in record time. I've never, never uh, put so much effort into reading a book in my life, uh, but it was worth it. I thought it was very interesting. I'm also uh, joined by uh, Neil Thompson. Neil. Hello. Yes. And the origins of this, I thought it was fascinating. I heard, um, I heard yourself on Radio 4 talking about the book and it struck me pulling the parallels of um, the work that I do in terms of trying to tie our nation together digitally, and some of the some of the interesting things and projections forwards of you know I suppose the sci-fi element of what you've written was was fascinating to me. So I was keen to to reach out and um, perhaps discuss you know some of your some of your thoughts about this digitally connected Britain and its its benefits, disbenefits, its its things that we should look out for and any any um, interesting nuggets of, of 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 advice for obviously because of the the role that you've you've played in our in our society, I guess. Uh, yes, sure. No, uh, it's a, um, uh, very happy uh, to be having this conversation. Um, uh, it's obviously very odd in a way that uh, we're discussing uh, a possible future crisis at a time when the nation and indeed the world are going through an existing a very different kind of crisis. Uh, but uh, it's quite important to maintain uh, sufficient respect uh, uh, mm. so that we don't forget that um, uh, long after COVID-19 has departed the scene, uh, other challenges uh, like uh, climate change and uh, uh, the relationships between um, China and the US and, and so on will be with us. And one of those challenges, uh, increasingly, I think, over coming decades, will be the uh, fragility um, that uh, we are subjecting our uh, ourselves um, to uh, as a result of uh, the uh, increasing convergence uh, of networks and, and our increasing dependence on uh, converging networks. I think it's uh, very interesting in the book, there are certainly some of the people that would be uh, hardest hit that you mentioned and some of the um, the effects in terms of harm to uh, the elderly and harm to uh, a, a vulnerable people and the the less well off um, does seem to be uh, a, a common factor. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, it, it's an unfortunate fact that many different kinds of uh, large scale um, societal um, crises uh, can affect um, the similar groups of people. Uh, almost always uh, those who are least uh, uh, able to fend for themselves. Uh, and uh, uh, to be elderly, to be uh, frail and vulnerable uh, is to be subject to a whole series of possible problems. The one I'm um, alerting uh, people to or trying to alert people to is that actually a, a society that depends on uh, a series of convergence uh, networks it, it, while it has huge additional resources as a result of that, uh, as we are indeed discovering in this crisis, how, how useful it is to be able to uh, do so much online and so much uh, uh, digitally, uh, nevertheless, uh, thereby becomes less capable of maintaining uh, continuity of service for vulnerable people if those convergent networks uh, fall over. And the argument mm. I'm making in the book, which I think is sort of evidently true, uh, is that uh, as networks converge, there's more and more likelihood that as well as being vastly more efficient and uh, effective when they are working, if something goes wrong, it's likely or more likely to uh, affect everything all at once. If you have a large number of disaggregated separate networks as we used to, rolling back 20, 30, 40 years ago, uh, 
the postal system was completely separate from the telephone system. The telephone system had its own little electricity supply. It was separate from electricity. Uh, electricity was separate from gas. Uh, uh, the various uh, means of transport were separate from communication. Uh, uh, everything uh, came in nice, discrete uh, units. And if one of them fell over, the rest would probably survive more or less intact. Uh, nowadays, uh, we are heading towards a, a situation in which, uh, partly because of uh, the very things that uh, you alluded to, the digital twinning, and partly because of the Internet of Things that that uh, accelerates and partly because of the convergence of uh, electronic communication and computing with almost every kind of uh, infrastructure and transport. Uh, we're heading towards a world in which uh, there is a, a effectively going to be, and already is to a large extent, a network of networks. And if that falls over, everything at the moment, more or less, uh, is subject to being disrupted uh, for at least a period while uh, that network of networks is put back in shape. So there's an excellent uh, parallel here that uh, uh, Neil uh, drew my attention to, um, which was called the Naked Highway. Uh-huh. Neil, oh, your... yeah, sorry. So I thought uh, an interesting thing that Henry and I discussed when um, when it's the opening section of your book where one of the characters is is trying to embark onto, I believe it's the M4, um and you know in in your world the the vehicle required um its autonomous capability to enter the highway um that capability was not functioning um you know the the, the character was wondering well it's it is illegal for me to go onto the highway without autonomy but i need that's where i need to go and sort of successfully um sort of uh, navigated through you know being able to see the road signs and i think you know We've got a concept in highways where we talk about naked roads and our, our beautiful roads where we're trying to create, you know, this platform for future automated vehicles where there might not be signage for humans to read. And it's focused on, you know, the roadway being aesthetically pleasing. Um, and, I, and, and I wondered, you know, I, I, one of the things I, was, I just wondered your, your thoughts on those, you know, roadways being platforms for automation, but then, you know, in your, in your scenario of the, of that breaking down, you know, is is our policies in that space well aligned, or what do you, what do you think? Well, I think you're alighting on a very interesting example of uh, the general point that I'm trying to make in the book as a whole. So I'm not just sounding the alarm about the uh, fragility of a society and an economy that increasingly depend on a single network of networks. I'm also uh, making an argument about how we should uh, attempt to provide ourselves with an insurance policy. And the argument is that uh, the insurance policy has to be analog rather than digital uh, because of the convergence of uh, uh, the networks into a network of networks and because of the digital character of that convergence, anything that is digitized, anything that is modern and effective is also liable to be compromised by whatever it is that strikes at the network of networks. So my argument is you need something separate, and separate means old-fashioned, analog, less capable, uh, less effective on a normal day, much less effective on a normal day, but very useful if you have to fall back to it because the modern, capable, effective, uh, dazzling uh, uh, digital network of networks isn't working. And road signs, and while we're at it, maps, a very classical example of simple, cheap, analog fallbacks. If if you have a road sign and uh, your uh, otherwise uh, 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 autonomous uh, vehicle isn't being autonomous because the network and networks isn't supporting it being so, uh, but you've got a human being there, um, uh, then the human being can indeed read the road signs. So while we're at it, if human beings have, continue to have, uh, cheap, simple things called maps and hmm. continue to know how to use them, um, then those human beings, if they are deprived of the uh, navigational advantages of the modern world, uh, can find a way around. Whereas if they don't have recourse to a map, uh, when the sat map stops, uh, they don't know where to go. And uh, those are two very good examples of the hugely uh, beneficial results of having uh, a network of networks, and an internet of things, uh, Convergent technologies 
which enable us to do wonderful things like drive without having to attend to where the car is going. And uh, if we are still attending to where the car is going, doing so by looking at a screen that's conveniently placed and speaks to us, rather than an old-fashioned map with all the horrors of uh, mm. disputes between husband and wife as they try to find their way places. But <laughs> you really do want those fallbacks <laughs> available should the uh, marvelous modern technology fail. And that's really the sum of what I'm arguing in this book. And it's not mm. complicated because we know there are analog fallbacks that do enable us to navigate literally and also metaphorically through a world where the network of networks isn't working. And we know that because we used to have it. I'm, I'm simply arguing that as an insurance policy, we should retain enough of uh, the old analog world uh, as a fallback, not to use it most of the time, but to know how to use it and to have it ready to be used as and when necessary. Yes, it's it's interesting. I think just to roll back onto the networks of networks bit for a moment is, I think our, our current view of those networks is we've got the, we essentially have a monolithic network that, you know, say a road, network and it's that's seen as a single network and if we tie those to um, the communication systems network um, I think my only challenge to your thought there is that if we think about those connected systems as um, you know one that network being a centralized control system and we're trying to connect different types of centrally controlled systems together is one thing and I agree they can they can fall over quite easily but um, if we look at more distributed types of networks where those technology um, implementations are more local, if we think about the distributed grid, for example, and people, instead of people being relying on power stations, they will rely primarily on their local production, maybe their own solar, wind, whatever, um, which they have in their homes. And then they will then depend on the broader network. So it flips the dependency and I wonder did you did you think about those sort of concepts that the distributed network of networks where the 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 I, I guess the, the interdependency is on a local level not a national level yes I, I I I think that is commonly thought and I think it's illusory and uh, sort of it's important to know that it's illusory for uh, three different reasons um one is derived directly from the example you furnish. I, I accept, of course, that there are many senses in which you could have a distributed network, but you were talking specifically about a distributed network of generation uh, uh, in the electricity supply industry. So people having their own uh, uh, solar panels, their own uh, wind power generation, their own uh, mm. uh, heat pumps and so on. Um, and of course, it is not only possible, uh, but a feature of even the current arrangements, and may well be more in the future, that uh, these distributed forms of electricity generation uh, are being installed. It's, it's, it's one of the many ways in which we help to tackle the uh, emissions uh, problems and the climate change effects. Uh, but it's uh, very important to look carefully at that particular example because it illustrates a very, very important general point. Uh, when you are uh, uh, installing in your home, uh, shall we say, a solar panel, uh, for which read any of the others. Um, uh, you also install in your home um, uh, uh, two-way arrangements to meter uh, the uh, flow of electricity from your home into the uh, grid at a time when uh, uh, you're producing surplus energy. And uh, uh, also, uh, you have the capacity then to draw on the grid at the time when you're not producing the energy you require. And um, uh, that's a very important feature of those installations, partly because of the economics. It's, it's enormously uh, cheaper for the householder if they can export when they need to, uh, and partly because of the utility. Uh, it's enormously preferable for the householder to be able to have electricity when their own um, system isn't, uh, their own generator isn't generating sufficient um, uh, sufficient electricity. Uh, but there's a consequence of installing that two-way uh, flow arrangement and the metering that goes with it, and that is that actually you're not in, in any way disjoined from the grid. Uh, uh, and... Uh, the operation of your electricity system actually depends on the operation of the grid, which in turn depends on the operation of 
the IT platform that underlies it and the IT platform that supports your two-way metering. And uh, while we're at it, those IT platforms, of course, depend on the grid for their power. So um, there's a mass of interdependencies and the illusion that you are separating yourself from the grid when you do this is just illusory. Uh, um, The second um, reason why that uh, thought is um, uh, that you can you can solve this problem just by distribution of modern technologies uh, is misleading and and dangerous. Is uh, actually can be drawn from the very same example. You could achieve a genuine separation if you didn't install the two-way metering. You installed instead a high degree of uh, battery uh, storage in your home. And indeed, as things move forward and electric vehicles. Uh, contain more advanced uh, uh, versions of current lithium-ion battery technology and we want to NFC A11s and eventually solid-state batteries. So it may very well be possible in due course to buy fairly cheaply considerable storage capacity for your home, perhaps from lithium-sodium uh, sodium-ion batteries. Um, uh, and uh, if that happens, you could, in theory, set yourself up completely independently from the grid with your battery and your uh, generator, and then you'd think that you were genuinely separated. Uh, but uh, it then turns out that there's a very large thing in this tale because uh, somehow or other, um, this uh, uh, mechanism needs to be controlled so that it's uh, working at the right times and in the right ways. And in fact, what's going on at the moment is an enormous elaboration, hugely to the advantage of the householder and of uh, our economy and society as a whole, of uh, remote control mechanisms um, which operate uh, via your iPhone uh, in order to be able to manage the um, energy balance of the home as a whole. These have huge advantages for uh, carbon emission control, but also for the efficiency of uh, heating and for uh, economic efficiency for the householder. As soon as you are linked, not to the grid, because on this thesis, you wouldn't be linked to the grid for electricity supply, but as soon as you are linked to the uh, uh, electronic platform, the digital platform that enable you to manage your supply, you are subject to the whole thing being switched off and rendered inoperable, not by the electricity grid going down directly, but by the electricity grid going down and taking with it the uh, internet platform or vice versa for a cyber attack. Mm. So I think so we're walking blindfold. That's the blindfold. second reason we should be very wary of this distribution. Sorry. And the third point I want to make is, coming back to my fundamental point, there is a form of distributed activity which is resilient in the face of the network of networks going down. I'll give you just a very simple example of that. Uh, if you are operating a road transport network as a county council, uh, you can't take the snow away from all the tiny little rural roads you're responsible for. It's as much as you can do to clear the main roads. So what happens is that in uh, sensible um, uh, communities, uh, little stores of salt are popped by the roadside and a local farmer engages to come out on the day, should it be necessary, and do some clearance using the salt in that thing and their tractor. Uh, That is a classic example of a totally distributed thing which uh, system, which can operate in circumstances of crisis. So if your fallback is not only distributed, but is very simple and very analog, then you maximize the chances that it won't be destroyed by the very same or rendered inoperative for a period by the very same kind of attack that the, or natural problem that's brought down the network and networks. So my answer to your question in, in, in short is, distribution is great, but it only works if you really make it sufficiently simple and sufficiently analog so that it's genuinely, in every respect, disjoined from and not in any way actually covertly dependent upon the network of networks. Wow, thank you. Um, So uh, I think the danger there is that we are um, sleepwalking into a, a world where we are forever more dependent on these things, having had um, an entirely... Uh, internet-connected house in the past, um, I have experienced in a very small scale um, the inability to heat my house uh, or turn my lights on. Um, uh, so I have, think I might have experienced that firsthand. I think it's a very interesting uh, set of points you've made there. 
Um, so this raises a key uh, um, difficulty uh, for policymakers and um, making uh, policies for for uh, managing uh, a world that is more resilient. Um, what sort of um, challenges uh, will uh, policymakers of today and tomorrow uh, face? You think that uh, this network of networks is is going to kind of force on them, as it were? Well, uh, what I uh, uh, seek to use my experience uh, in government as Minister of Resilience to draw out in the book is the uh, degree to which uh, the exigencies of uh, democratic politics uh, and the way that bureaucracies operate mean that it's extraordinarily difficult to uh, get a sufficient consensus in government, in parliament, in the administration, in politics, in favor of uh, building in redundancy, of having uh, analog fallback insurance systems. Um, this is uh, because, um, uh, first of all, um, it, it's very unsexy. Um, being the minister who proudly announces that you've spent some of the nation's uh, taxpayers' hard-earned money uh, doing something which you hope they'll never have to use and which they'll never see unless it is uh, there is a crisis and it is used uh, and which uh, um, uh, is is being done um, on the basis simply that something might go wrong is an incredibly unsexy thing for a politician to tell to anybody. Secondly, inside the bureaucracy, there's uh, there's always the dynamic which gets attention focused on whatever the current crisis is. So let's again just look at the COVID situation because it's a very illustrative of the same general point. Um, it's, it's now clear, isn't it, that having piles of protective equipment, having large numbers of um, uh, available um, ventilators and, and oxygenation systems in the NHS, having spare facilities for um, uh, acute uh, hospital treatment in uh, uh, accident and emergency and uh, intensive care. These are all things which it's now become very evident. It would have been good if we'd had piled up, sitting there, ready for use. Um, uh, we, we didn't. Um, why not? Um, uh, a, a particularly interesting case, actually, because actually pandemic flu, admittedly not uh, this particular virus, but nevertheless something very close, was top right on the government's risk register, highest impact, highest likelihood uh, category. And there had been repeated trials uh, of whether we were properly prepared. And it was one of the things actually that everybody assured me when I was Minister of Resilience, we really were prepared for, and I therefore focused on other things. Uh, but actually what happened was, it seems, that uh, in the face of uh, the considerable difficulties the nation was facing vis-a-vis -vis Brexit and so on, uh, and uh, the pressures on the health service, um, some corners were cut, uh, and things which uh, could and should have been laid in store, and which, interestingly, in Germany and Singapore and places they had laid in store, were not laid in store. Um, and no one, of course, would have noticed the difference until actually you reach a moment of crisis. Um, and this is repeated over and over again in a whole series of domains. And it arises because of this unsexiness of the uh, proposition that you're simply doing something for insurance purposes, combined with the fact that there's always within the bureaucracy the sort of doctrine of the unripe time. Where, yes, we can do it. But we don't need to do it tomorrow. We could do it next year. This isn't going to happen anytime soon, Minister. Why don't we do it a bit later? Combined with the fact that um, it requires a large <coughs> logistical effort. Um, uh, it, it's, um, you, you've got to spend money, you've got to spend time, you've got to be doing things which sound uh, counterintuitive. So, you know, establishing a large store of physical maps so that we have some maps around if we need them, um, making sure you keep road signs even when nobody's actually using them anymore, uh, uh, organizing things so that um, the, 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 somebody has a piece of paper on which they've written down the names of all the elderly people whom they're looking after as domiciliary carers, 
rather than just having that on the computer, which won't work if the computer system is down because the network networks is down. All those sorts of things are tedious, time-consuming, slightly expensive. They're not talking about huge sums of money, but, but the, the natural reaction of the whole political system, that's to say politicians, the media, uh, uh, and uh, officials in, in, in the various uh, central and local bureaucracies in this country and around the world, is always to say, well, we don't really need to worry about that too much. Let's get on and solve the crisis we are actually dealing with rather than worrying about things that might happen. And that's uh, an attitude, um, in my view, which is uh, very dangerous. Yeah, it's, it's 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 interesting as you're as you're talking about you know these these things that we may need as as insurances and connecting it to the you know, this this problem of the 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 connected network of networks and them failing. I was, I was just looking over. I just, there's a an interesting book by Tim Harvard, who's the undercover economist of the FT, um, called Adapt. And in that book, he talks about a thing called the automation paradox. Um, mm-hmm. uh, 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 and uh, I guess for the listeners. Um, you know, he talks about uh, pilots and an issue of, you know, they have all their training um, and because of the level of automation available in the cockpit now, um, they've had instances of very simple issues going wrong. Um, but because, um, you know, it's, it's sort of out of the mind of the pilot for them to correct that issue, they've overcompensated and created a bigger problem. So I think um, I, I might need correcting, but it's uh, a, a plane can stall. Um, you know, that's where it loses its uplift under the wings and you have to make a very minor adjustment and you fix it. Um, but when that happened in the war, the pilots are thinking compensated in a different way and caused a situation. There was and a specific think, example there. Yeah, I, I do remember yeah. that. I do remember and that point. I think one of the things that um, I can't remember if it's in the book, or if it was one of my thoughts. So I don't want to take credit for uh, something that would have, was one of Tim Harvard's thoughts. But you know this 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 concept of using the automation that's in the system to be able to throw up scenarios for humans to respond to when the automation's ticking along in terms of training and being prepared. Um, and I wonder if you know, is you know uh, like your your maps example is you know we had this notion of national service with the military, for example. Is there a is there a mechanism where we'd have a a national service whereby we can participate in you know, a scenario being thrown at us as a citizen and we have to make sure that we keep ourselves well-trained in the event of these sort of this, this cascade failure of, of systems. Is that, is that, is that a plausible policy, for example? Just a I think it is. Yes. Idea. I think, I think it is the case that um, uh, dealing with these uh, black swan events, these very unlikely events, if they do occur, uh, uh, doesn't just require um, having uh, analog fallback systems in the sense of somebody having put some things, some maps, some pieces of paper, some road signs, whatever, in particular places and stored them up. It also depends on making sure that the right kind of people, which may be either everybody or some subset of people, uh, are properly uh, trained uh, in using them. Um, and uh, moreover, it depends on being sure that uh, they're maintained properly. So to give you a different example, um, one of the major problems about the network of networks going down uh, uh, is that uh, it um, uh, makes it impossible for people to communicate with one another, literally, uh, in the sense you can't use your uh, iPhone or whatever uh, to to talk to one another. Um, a, a possible route to preventing that occurring if the grid goes down is to do uh, something quite simple and analog, which is to have uh, generators, standby generators and fuel tanks uh, uh, at, at any rate, a reasonable number of uh, telecommunications mast installations. And then to arrange things so that uh, a system which doesn't suffer from the kickback effects that uh, we saw in 7.7 of uh, overuse of the system in in, uh, times of a crisis and with uh, uh, the the bits that are 
speaking to unite with one another across the internet uh, through packet switching, going mad and traveling around forever and ever in search of a, of a route to, to rejoin one another. You have instead a simple texting system which doesn't depend on uh, IP technology. And uh, uh, in principle, therefore, if you have the mask and you have people with uh, phones, uh, assuming for a moment we find some way of making sure they can charge their phones under such circumstances on an analog basis. Uh, uh, and if you have the generator and you have the tanks, then you have the rudiments of a very stripped down, much less functional, but nevertheless usable communication system, which could solve a lot of the problems which otherwise arise in a network of networks failure. However, critically, if the generators uh, aren't actually usable because nobody's tried them for the last 10 or 20 years, or nobody knows how to pull the handle to turn them on in the absence of any electrical input to them, or uh, somebody siphoned off the uh, petrol because they've been sitting there for years and they thought to themselves it'd be much more efficient to use this and only put some extra petrol in when we think it's going to be necessary. Well, then, of course, when you get to it, you won't be able to use this. So it, 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 what an analog fallback policy requires is not just thinking through the things you need, but the maintaining of those things and the testing of those things and the training of people to use those things in appropriate ways, uh, just as in your example of the pilot and the cockpit, which is a very good example. Um, uh, I, I certainly want to fly in planes, where if the plane's electronics fail, I'm pretty confident the pilot knows how to manage the thing uh, down onto the ground. I don't require the pilot to be able to take me all the way to Australia, but I do want to make sure I can get down somewhere safely. And that depends on the pilot being trained and having available to the pilot mechanisms for using the aircraft in a safe manner, even when all the complicated and wonderful technology, which would otherwise get us to Australia very easily, fails. So this is um, uh, an international problem. This uh, Your yes. book focuses on the Global. UK, of Global. course. Um, yeah. But we, we are looking, um, bringing the parallel back to uh, COVID-19, um, there have been calls for a um, some sort of international action so that there is a collective response in the same way that there is a response um, to weapons of mass destruction and those same sort of powers um, available uh, to organize it, to the international community to respond to those sorts of events. What, what level of response do you think is appropriate? Well, um, this is a global problem and it uh, ultimately requires uh, a, a coordinated global response. Um, in the case of uh, COVID-19, it's extremely interesting that uh, actually a huge amount of benefit could be uh, got from increased international cooperation. And one of the most uh, regrettable things about our current situation has been that uh, uh, we see uh, uh, President Trump um, uh, blaming the Chinese rather than trying to work with the Chinese and uh, uh, the uh, the degree of cooperation that, that we might have hoped for uh, has not been present. Um, in the particular case of uh, uh, network of network failure, uh, as I tried to bring out in the book, my own uh, view is that if any one country actually were to take this sufficiently seriously to build up a full array of analog fallback uh, systems so that the, that country was very well protected against these problems. Uh, happily, I think that would probably lead the way to other countries doing the same thing. Um, uh, it, would, it, it would create both an incentive for other countries to do it uh, and uh, uh, some demand, I think, in their populations to be similarly protected. Um, if it could be shown that it could be done fairly cheaply and straightforwardly, and if the country that started the process of doing it fully were to um, bang the drum a bit. And actually, interestingly, I think the UK is rather further advanced than this than most other countries, but we'd have a lot of work to do to get to a full protection over some years. I think that could lead the way to the world doing so. Once other countries start doing it, then, of course, it becomes quite easy to encapsulate the learning from the various countries that are doing it 
in some kind of international guidance that could be under the sponsorship of the relevant uh, or a relevant uh, UN agency. And uh, uh, one uh, can therefore imagine uh, something which starts in one country, spreads to others, and then becomes a matter of uh, universal uh, application. And at that point, uh, I think something very important could happen, which is it would then become clear that those countries which are donor countries, uh, uh, rich countries that give money in aid, uh, could uh, could help poorer countries to develop their own analog fallbacks. Because we shouldn't forget that, um, uh, it, it, just as you were saying right at the beginning of this conversation, there are particularly vulnerable people within society who tend to suffer whatever the crisis is, worse than the rest of us. So there are particularly vulnerable countries that tend to suffer worse from a crisis than, than other countries. And they're the poor countries. And uh, they too, interestingly, are increasingly dependent on these technologies. I mean, in fact, in some respects, um, uh, surprisingly perhaps, more so. So in, there are large numbers of African countries at the moment in which effectively all transactions now, uh, small commercial transactions, are um, uh, mobile telephony mm-hmm. transactions. Um, I think, uh, they have actually sorry. left off having a, having a, a, a paper currency uh, effectively. And uh, they are therefore enormously dependent on the network networks. And so uh, having a, a recognized need for donor aid to help the poorer countries protect themselves through adequate uh, insurance policies, which otherwise they may find it very difficult to afford, uh, would be a huge advance. Sorry. Uh, no, no uh, and you've, you've, you've changed my view on something. So w- one of the things that Henry and I have spoken about in a previous podcast talking about infrastructure is that um, you know, a point of view is um, the UK could be quite could be seen to be slow to implement certain new types of infrastructure because we have the legacy of basically version one of most other types of infrastructure. So if you think about our rail, generally the first version ever made in the world, telephony, etc. Uh, and then you gave Africa for it as an example, and you know they've been able to implement electronic payment systems rapidly in the absence of. Um, let's say, the baggage of legacy infrastructure. Now, interestingly, and I think to maybe what we're saying here is that actually our legacy infrastructure should be seen not as a, as a hindrance that slows us down, but something that is and does create an insurance policy for us because we have then got that multi, multimodal um, infrastructure roughly in place. And it's yes, more of, as 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 we build the automation on top of it is making sure you know as you say let's let's have six G but the old the old telegraph systems let's have a bare level of maintenance on those to make sure that uh, they can at least ping basic messages. I think we're yeah. seeing what you're looking at is um, when you take that existing system and you you slap a digital one on the top of it. Don't get rid of the original switch. Because now that switch is only online, um, you've, you're eroding the uh, the redundancy of that system. That, the resilience. That's precisely my point. You know, this is exactly the point. And and I, ju- I just add one further rider, which is which I tried to bring out in some detail in the book, which is that that's more complicated and demands more intellectual and practical effort than one might think. So when you pop, as you put it quite rightly. Um, Layers, new layers of higher-level technologies on top of old systems. Uh, even if you retain the the underlying old system, you have to be very careful that you haven't done something that makes the underlying system now depend on the higher level. Uh, and that 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 requires a good deal of imagination and thought and hard work. It's perfectly achievable, but it it's it's non-trivial. Um, uh, there's a there's a uh, uh, there was a very great Economist um, uh, in uh, in Chicago who um, uh, used to tell his students back in the 30s, the 1930s, that uh, uh, it was great for a, uh, a firm to uh, bring in some new technology uh, to make them more efficient, as long as they didn't then try to find the most uh, the, the greatest possible number of uses for the new technology, but just used it for the thing it was going to be efficient for. Uh, 
And in a similar kind of way, uh, it's great to put a new layer on top of the old one and keep the old one as long as you don't then try to optimize, as it's often put, by um, uh, driving some feature of the old from the new and vice versa so that you end up actually contaminating the old with the necessity of dependence on the new. Excellent. I think that's a that is a perfect, neat uh, wrap up. I'm very happy with that. Are you happy with that, Neil? Sorry, I was on mute. Yes. Do you, do you remember the name of the Economist by any chance, so I can uh, add them um, to my list? <laughs> uh, uh, I was desperately searching for it. His first name is Frank. Um, uh, uh, and I, uh, I, I, teacher. I his second name but I'd make him back. Frank Frank Knight? Frank Knight, that's the man. Yeah, yeah. Oh go. Frank Knight as in um uh Knightian risk. Yeah, that's right. And all that stuff. Yes, yeah. Okay. He specialized in all this. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, I think I think so, we're done on the conversation. I do want to have uh, uh, pick your brains. Uh, there's lots of interesting references to uh, other books and other reading. Um, do you have any recommendations? Um, not 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 anyone in particular. I mean, I I, I think um, I mean it, what what interested me when I sort of got to um, uh, reading around the subject a bit is that um, uh, there's lots of, um, uh, there are a lot of interesting things that have been written in in the same general domain. Um, What what actually prompted me to write the book was that I couldn't find something uh, that um, uh, was was focused on the specific issue of the evolving convergence. and I think it's just a matter of timing, really. Um, uh, there are lots of people who wrote really interesting things about fragility, uh, 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 but at a time when this particular phenomenon hadn't really come to the fore, simply because we, actually it's, it's been amazingly fast. Um, it was just dramatically less true even 10 years ago, let alone 20. Um, so I suspect that be a whole pile of new literature about all this, and in a sense, you're. you're Oh, uh, focus on on digital twinning and so on is is an illustration of that. Um, and I I think with luck there'll be lots more books now coming along that that look at various aspects of this same um, problem. But at the moment it's 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 very thin rule because um, it, it, people have spent a lot of time thinking about risk and insurance and um, uh, uh, about. Um, uh, the 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 whole sort of question of how you uh, how you uh, cost risk and 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 uh, deal with um, uh, with black swan events and so on and I that's what's in the bibliography but but um, there's not um, there's not really anybody uh, uh, that I'd come across anyway who've who who had uh, previously um, uh, sort of recognised the problem of the miracle if you like. Uh, there's so much attention to the miraculousness of the miracle, very understandably, of uh, these fantastic convergent technologies that people are uh, only slowly going to catch up with the risk. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Not at all. No, lovely. Thank you. Um, uh, uh, more power to you, Elba. <laughs> <laughs> and to you as well. I hope, I hope our listeners uh, go and check out your book, which is called Apocalypse How. <laughs> Great. Thank you. All right. Okay. Take care. Thank you, Oliver. Bye. All right. Bye now. Well, Henry, that was incredibly interesting. What did you think? Um, I, well, he changed your mind, and um, and I think he's changed my mind in terms of uh, this uh, viewing of our infrastructure as a uh, as a positive legacy. That's something that um, we have to build on. I really hadn't considered the idea that uh, actually those those systems that we already have in place, suitably well maintained, could be uh, so useful to us in the future. And it, it you know, he, he is talking about a network of networks crisis, but we we saw lots of parallels with COVID, and uh, it, there will be another uh, disease epidemic. Um, 
And so the, the, I think the, the points that he makes apply across all sorts of levels. Mm. I think you know, if we were to talk to him again, I think one of the interesting things that comes from this is the role of the state. And um, there's this, you know, when we say public goods and services is, you know, we have a bus service for those that can't have their own private means of travel. Um, and what's the digital equivalent of that? Uh, yeah, would we have subsidized access to the internet and devices given to those that can't access? Well, I think this is, I know, uh, this is something yeah. that this is an issue that is, is present already today, isn't it? If you have an online only form, you are isolating a segment of society and it's not a large segment of society, but it is a potentially vulnerable section of society. So, and the argument could be, well, you know, libraries have computers in that give you access to the internet and maybe like some things like the job center, they, they give you access. And I'm not sure if there are other publicly and free available spaces for accessing the internet, but I'd imagine, and this is just my imagination, is that when you add up the cost of providing that infrastructure in a building like a library, there's there's a cost there that probably is, what, is it more than providing a mobile phone with an internet connection? I think, um, and it's interesting, it, and the parallel to, to COVID here and talking about the recovery as we, as we exit and the, this world that we're going to potentially be in is look at the office space you know office spaces were there because access to high-speed internet was expensive computers were expensive and um you know companies uh, wanted I don't, to I don't focus 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 their investment into wait wait hear me out uh, you know okay, focus okay. their investment to provide the tools to do the job because it was way too expensive to allow um to buy it all individually and get it shipped right um, one argument uh, there, um, I think one of the things that we may see um, exiting is m- more focus on the human connectivity elements of of work. So um, I can imagine, you know, put my Atkins head on for a moment that we might look at, you know, look at the square meter space that we use in urban hubs and say, well, why can't they um, be more uh, the utility around collaboration? So it being stand-up space with screens and boards and VR headsets and all that stuff instead of, you know, these rows and rows of benches with, 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 with people on that are connected to in, you know, mobile infrastructure anyway, they're all, I mean, how many consultancies now, I think they provide laptops as default and desktops as an exception. You know, there was a time that was the other, I remember, you know, it was the other way around, you know, if you wanted to have a laptop, you, you needed to have a business case to have a laptop. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think no. I think you touched on the the point I was going to make that uh, I think actually human connectivity and and inertia, to be fair, is is the reason to. It's a legacy thing. That's the reason that businesses work in places is because that's how businesses work. That's what a business is. It is a place of work, um, and we've obviously that's all been totally challenged and upended. But these two uh, forces of kind of decentralizing people, um, and we've decentralized people and how they work um, overnight internationally, has shown how important that connection is, but also how important it isn't at the same time. Uh, Maybe we need to be a little bit more honest with ourselves about why we're doing these things. And this has parallels. I think the parallel is um, is the high street, I think. Uh, we okay. have seen a, a real drop in the use of uh, of physical shops, and you know they're still going uh, strong. But there there is a concern, I think, that uh, the future of the high street is uncertain. Um, and I, I think there's a parallel there of of we people will still always need that physical connection. But what are we using these places, these spaces for? I think we have a unique opportunity now to take a really good look at our private and public spaces uh, uh, and the kind of private public spaces like coffee shops and that sort of thing and reimagine how we use infrastructure. Mm. There we go. That's a nice summary. I think, I think 
we only my only um I say criticism I think I'm not I'm convinced of the the possible failings and that we need to have resilience and insurances but I do think there's more in the distribution of networks and making um making yes. the the modularity of the network more granular so yes. if you have something that is attacked your it's 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 a build it's a it's a lego brick of that network that fails i think there's that and i'm, I'm sure he's aware of that i think he was he was, he was, he was, he was stating that out but i think there's there's that and the other aspect is um yeah no so on on that point um the I, I I think the distributed aspects of how these things work. He the key point he made was, and then if it suddenly depends on the the wider network, that's where the the problems mm. occur. I don't know if we know enough about. Oh, I personally, I don't think I know enough about how all of the systems interoperate. I think we live in a world of increasing specialization and. Connecting things together is almost its own specialization. I think we need that ability to take the, the wider view and, and draw these lines, draw these lines of resilience between different assets to, to know if, we're, uh, if, if something is really resilient or not. I guess no one actually knows, do they? Well, that, yeah, I, it's one of those things. And he says it in the book. He's... Um, is the the frequent responses is oh I'm sure somebody's dealing with that. <laughs> he said something that he's heard a lot, and I was thinking, yeah, I think that does sound like the the sort of thing where oh, I'm sure someone's thinking of it. I don't know who. That's open my eyes.